Today on the show, we know Jalen Carter was in Seattle last night. What is at stake and how might it alter Seattle's draft plans if it went well? I'll ask the question, did the Seahawks fall into the wrong year to have multiple high picks? There are questions about the overall quality of this class and one scouting analyst in particular doesn't like this edge class at all. We'll dig into that. I'll take a look at a couple thought-provoking mock drafts. One speaks to a potential disconnect when it comes to how you, the fan, are viewing the Seahawks' needs. And then we'll explore the idea of trading down, maybe multiple times, maybe significantly in the first round, what kind of haul that might result with a sneak preview of a mock draft that the writer hasn't even released to the public yet. And stick around until the end. I've been asked what the perfect positional breakdown would be for the Seahawks' 10 picks. Today, I'll give you my answer with a twist. Let's do this. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Good to join you all again. Uh, those of you who watched our live seven-round mock draft with Michael Thompson of 12th Man Rising on Monday, uh, thanks for hanging in for all two hours and 10 minutes. Thanks for all of you who contributed and commented. And uh, also, thank you for living through the technical difficulties. And for those of you who prefer to listen to this on audio only, uh, apologize that there wasn't a version of that. Just had uh, a couple of issues that I could not overcome to get an audio version published. Uh, let's get to this first. We know that Jalen Carter was in town last night. We know because it was reported that he would be visiting, and then we also know because Jalen Carter, on his Instagram story, showed a picture of him with his feet on the ground at SeaTac Airport in Seattle. Um, uh, let's just be brief about this because we've talked a lot about Jalen Carter, and there's a reason for that, right? We know about the off <clears throat> the off field concerns, the the quote unquote red flags that some people have about his uh, work ethic. His conditioning, his love of the game, passion for the game, not to mention uh, the legal issues uh, in in relation to the deadly crash uh, shortly after the national championship game, and and uh, and, and what that might mean um, when you're looking at his character. The fact the Seahawks brought him in, I talked about this the other day. It, I think is a positive sign because look, we've we've established this, and I've come full circle on this. Those of you who have listened to the show regularly. Um, I was scared to death of him as a prospect uh, when all this stuff broke a couple of months ago. But at the end of the day, he would be the exact best player to fill the biggest need the Seahawks have on their roster at this, at this moment. And if he can put it all together, a lot of people agree he's just flat out the best player in the draft with the highest ceiling, all pro career, long-term, something the Seahawks haven't had in the trenches uh, for years. So just the fact they brought him in for a visit, I think is a good thing. I don't think it's a smokescreen. I don't think they would do that to this kid with everything he's been through, bring him all the way out here to the West Coast just for appearances. Make no mistake about it. If that meeting went well, if the Seahawks are convinced that he's dedicated to being great, he's willing to put the work in, and maybe most importantly, that he wants to be a Seahawk and sees this as the place that where he can get the most out of his talent, he's the pick. He's the pick. 
So I've uh, been scouring Twitter today, just checked before I hit record, haven't seen any reports yet, and I did tweet it out earlier today. At some point, it wouldn't surprise me if his agent, Drew Rosenhaus, leaked to whoever reporter he likes the best about how well the meeting went. If that happens, when that happens, don't read too much into it. Don't get too excited about it. That even if the meeting went poorly, I could see Rosenhaus doing that to try to prop up the perception of his client for other potential suitors. So again, the Jalen Carter saga continues. Uh, there has been, it, it's been radio silence. There, ha, It's been absolute crickets in regards to any kind of reports of how well the meeting went. I want to dig into this. Um, talked about it with Corbin Smith last week. Talked about it Monday night with Michael Thompson. The idea that as we get closer to the draft, and this happens every year, but it seems to be particularly loud this year. As we get closer to the draft, I think a little bit of analytical malaise or paralysis by analysis sets in where, you know, we've been talking about this for three solid months. There's only so many different ways you can look at this draft. There's only so many mock drafts you can do, although I am bound and determined to find out what that number is. <laughs> um, you start to doubt your evaluations at times. You start to get bored. I know I do personally with mocking the same guys, talking about the same guys. And so I've made the analogy before that sometimes I think football scouts, football analysts, football writers, and even professional scouts are kind of like movie critics. That they don't want to be seen as cliche or vanilla and so they don't want to just run with the pack all the time. And sometimes some of them want to be contrarian. Most movie critics hate blockbuster movies. Won't say anything good about them, even if they're compelling movies. They want to find that little indie film that no one knows about, and prop it up and talk about how great it is in the event that it does do well someday, wins awards, whatever they can say they were the first one to discover it. You get that with music critics too. They hate the big selling bands and they try to find that little indie band that nobody knows about yet. Um, we saw that in the Bob McGinn piece that I talked about a couple episodes ago that I was a little bit, I was a couple weeks late in getting to the longtime Green Bay Packer writer who now has his own site where he quoted anonymously a bunch of NFL scouts and I posted some of it on my Twitter feed if you want to go back and look from a couple of days ago. And the black and white, the, the extreme polar opposite, um, divisive, polarizing opinions of some scouts about the same prospect. One said Drew Sanders is the best, best off-ball linebacker in the draft. The other one said he can't play linebacker. You know, that kind of thing. One, one said Will Anderson is just a nice little try-hard guy nothing special. Another guy said he's the most dominating defensive player in the draft. That kind of thing. We're starting to hear as we get closer to the draft, and, and some of this is because people are looking closer. They've had more time with these prospects. They've had more time to work their connections and their contacts, talk to, to team personnel, 
and officials and get a get a better idea as they get a better idea of where some of these prospects stand. And what we continue to hear is there's depth here. There's quality depth. I've told you many times there's depth that I like. But it lacks that elite group of players at the top that are consensus blue chip players. And so I asked the question, did the Seahawks pick the wrong year to have extra draft picks? Of course they didn't because the timing for the Russell Wilson trade was right. It was a move they had to make. And this trade was the ultimate example of maximizing his value. I'm not so sure they would have gotten more for Russell if they had traded him the year before. In fact, the reported trade that the Bears offered, did it include one more first-round pick? Did it include three first-round picks? I'd have to go back and look now. But my recollection is it wasn't that much better in terms of total package, players and picks received, and then where those picks ended up being in the draft with Denver having a bad year. Of course they didn't. They weren't going to wait because they do look ahead. They, they look ahead and they'll make decisions in this draft Inevitably, we may never hear about it based on, well, that's not a pressing need. That's a position we think is stronger next year. Maybe we take another guy in this spot. They're looking ahead. That might certainly stand for their evaluations of these quarterbacks and whether or not they think they should use a high pick and use that asset on a quarterback this year. Because trust me, they're looking at next year's quarterback class and evaluating that already if they think there's any chance they can get a guy later in the first round or the second round that may play into their evaluations. Most NFL teams don't approach these drafts as this year or bust. That's reckless. It's dangerous. Some do. We've seen teams sell out. Uh, And sometimes they pay for it later. We've also seen the opposite. We've seen teams play the long game give up current assets for future assets. We've heard a lot because of what I just said, because of that lack of elite talent in this draft. You know, we've heard that most teams have 12 to 15 first round grades in this draft. Um, That's just first round grades. That's not blue chip talent. The consensus seems to be there's four, five, or maybe six blue chip players in this draft. And so teams will certainly be looking to acquire picks in next year's draft. The problem is if everyone has that idea, you're not going to find a trade partner. Knowing that next year could be a stronger draft at the top, because of, in part because of so many guys that were projected to be first-round picks this year that decided to stay in school, take advantage of the NLI money, make a little bit of money while they're trying to improve their draft stock. It's certainly part of the evaluation. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I saw a piece written by John Ledyard yesterday on Twitter. A former writer for the Draft Network. He's been an outstanding writer and analyst covering the draft for years. And he published his edge rankings. And there's been some discussion, some debate about how pressing of a need edge is for the Seahawks. Obviously, if Will Anderson is there at five, you take him. But outside of that, you know, they have Nwosu, they have Daryl Taylor, they have Boye Mafe, they have Tyreek Smith, who Corbin Smith has told me multiple times over the last week they really, really like. In fact, he told it, told me that again today. 
They really like him. They think he's going to be a factor after having to sit out his whole rookie year uh, with an injury. Uh, the fifth-round pick out of Ohio State last year. Fits that exact mold of what they're looking for. And now he's had a year in the system. Don't forget about guys like that. You know, when we talk about safety, don't forget about guys like Joey Blunt. Remember, I, I brought this up with Michael on Monday, and he, he actually admitted he had forgotten about this. Cam Chancellor did not see the field as a rookie. Played special teams. Didn't start a single game at safety. By his second year, he took over that position, and the rest is history. There are guys who pop in the second and third year. Mafe could be one of those guys. So there's, there's some question about how pressing of a need that is, but most people seem to think we should certainly take advantage of what's generally viewed as a deep edge class. A bunch of different guys in there too. All different shapes and sizes depending on scheme and what you like and your thresholds. There's also some debate about what the term edge means. I, I think it gets thrown around a little lazily sometimes because it can also mean 3-4 defensive end. Keon White can be viewed as an edge and sometimes is in rankings. In other rankings, I see him listed as an outside linebacker. But he's a guy who's, what, 6'4", 285? Some people view Tyree Wilson as a defensive end. Some people view him as an outside linebacker. Generally, he's viewed as an edge, right? So I do believe, I've talked about it multiple times, that defensive end, 3-4 defensive end is a huge need on this roster, and I'd actually like to see them double down. Ooh, I don't want to give away my positional distribution of picks that's coming up later in the show. Um, so, John Ledyard put out his edge rankings, and he rated, uh, he rated the edge players that he had first, second, third, and fourth round grades on. And again, when he says he gives a first round grade, it doesn't, or any of these grades, it doesn't necessarily mean at all, where he thinks they will be drafted. He knows they'll be drafted higher. It's in a vacuum and compared to other years, just based on pure talent and tape evaluation, where he thinks their value should be. He has one first round grade from the edge class. And yes, that's Will Anderson, no surprise. But what may surprise you is that he has him graded as a low first round player, a quote unquote quality starter. Does that surprise you? Do you disagree with that? He has two second round grades, Nolan Smith and Miles Murphy. He has Lucas Van Ness and Tyree Wilson with third round grades. Wilson might go fifth to the Seahawks. He's generally considered to be a lock in the top 10. Van S, generally considered to be a lock in the top 20, possibly top 15. He has a fourth round grade on my one of my favorites, Keon White. So just just, just wanted to give you an idea that that universally this draft is viewed as a, a mixed bag. There's there's varying opinions no matter where you look. Keep that in mind on draft night and, and also understand that teams do their own evaluations. You know, John Schneider has always said it. We build our board for ourselves, our need, what we're looking for in a player, our grading system, not what we think anyone else is going to think of this player. 
And so they don't care if they draft a guy higher than the quote-unquote consensus might think they should have taken them. Which is why I think so many of us loved last year's draft, even on draft night. Or, well, it's not just one night anymore. But after the draft, even before we saw how great the class worked out. Because for the first time, I think in the Schneider-Carroll regime, there weren't those big curveballs. Those surprises out of left field. Who's that guy? Wait, what? Mel Kuyper sitting at the desk going, he's a fourth rounder. Why are they taking him in the second? We didn't see that. Every time they went to the podium and the number flashed up on the bottom of the screen and the name flashed on the bottom of the screen, I know I did. And, I, and, and talking to a bunch of you, I know you did too. You went, wow, that pick makes a lot of sense. Schneider has talked about they changed their approach last year. Stop trying to press for need. Just take best player available. Uh, we'll see how that plays out this year. But keep that in mind, that if you if they take a guy in a certain range that you read someone doesn't like, or you personally don't like, or you're just going based on what you read from someone else's analysis, um, you know, first of all, this might sound a little flippant, but they, you, have to, you have to take somebody, right? But rest assured that it's going to be a player the Seahawks think can be a player. Uh, I want to take a look at a couple of mock drafts um, that I thought were interesting. We get a lot of these as we get closer to the draft because I do it. I do mock draft Monday. I love alliteration, big fan of it, but a lot of other people do too. So it's always a great time to start the week this time of year. You get, you know, we got Mel Kuyper's new new mock draft and we got McShay's new mock draft and we see new mock drafts from the Lance Zerlines of the world and, and Chad Reuter. And, and there were a couple this week that really piqued my interest. Uh, one was one that our friend, Michael Thompson, who we did the live mock draft on Monday, sent me in a DM yesterday and he was playing around with pretty aggressive, multiple trades down. And the reason I thought it would be interesting to talk about this, and he gave me permission to show it to you, even though he hasn't written it up yet. And so keep an eye on 12th Man Rising. He's going to publish it in the coming days with his reasoning and breakdown of how, how this all was put together. But I thought it would be an interesting exercise to look at it because of what I just talked about. If the Seahawks get to where they're on the clock at pick five, and regardless of what any of us think they should do in that moment based on players that are on the board. If on their board, there isn't a player that they feel is truly worthy of fifth round value. I talked about that concept last week. That based on their grading system, they don't have anyone left on their board that in their opinion would not be a reach at five then they may look hard to move down. And if that happens, I would hope that y'all don't freak out. And, and this is kind of why I want to show you this mock draft because it does speak to how, to me, the sweet spot in this draft is from 10 all the way through day two. And even into the fourth round. And maybe if you're not sure 
that there's a guy on your board that is going to three, four years down the line have a career that's reflective of the value of a fifth round pick. You're going to try to move down. It's going to get you extra picks in the thick of this draft. So that's what Michael did. I'm going to screen share it here for those of you who are watching the live stream. Uh, this is what he did. So he moved all the way down to 11. And I I didn't get the particulars. Uh, I think 11's Tennessee. So they probably moved up pretty aggressively for a quarterback. There's a lot of growing sentiment. They may do that. I think that's who has the 11th pick. Uh, but it doesn't matter. He also traded down from 20, as you can see, to 25. Here's what he ended up with. At 11, Jackson Smith and Jigba, who Jim Nagy just said, the um, head of the senior bowl who used to work in the Seahawks scouting front office, they have great connections there still with Nagy and value his opinion a great deal. He said, the NFL, he just said this the other day, the NFL is not as high on this wide receiver group as fans and analysts are. And that JSN is the only wide receiver, in his opinion, that he believes universally throughout the league has a first-round grade. And you've heard me talk about how I think he's a perfect match for this roster. You put him in the slot, he's an elite slot receiver to complement DK and Tyler and a guy that just you're layering those guys. And so as Tyler continues to get older, you still have a dynamic receiver. I think it's something they lack on this roster. So you get him at 11. At 25, you get Darnell Washington, a tight end that I know a lot of you really like because when we did our live mock draft on Monday, a bunch of you chipped in and really wanted him. He's a guy that's an all-around tight end, outstanding blocker, great athlete, big target. We talked about how the long-term need for tight end makes a lot of sense and how great this tight end class is. At 37, he gets Keon White. We've talked about him to death. That seems like a really good value spot for him. At 52, Siaki Aika, prototypical 3-4 nose tackle. The one thing they don't have on this roster, at least a healthy one with Brian Monet being out and uh, his season being in question. At 72, a player we talked about Monday that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. We talk about how weak this inside linebacker group is. In particular, Guys that are built like Sewell, 250 pounds. It can come up, play straightforward, stop the run. Kind of what they're asking Bobby Wagner to do now. That's what this guy excels at. He's not a sideline to sideline player. He's not, he doesn't excel in coverage, but he's a thumper. Maybe the perfect guy to learn behind Bobby. At 83, you get your starting long-term center, Luke Whipler out of Ohio State. We've talked about what a great scheme fit he is. At 89, DeMarvian Overshone, a long, rangy uh, outside linebacker, mostly can play inside, more of a coverage guy, has safety background to him. Um, uh, one of the leading draft analysts, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, can't remember exactly who it was the other day, tweeted, uh, oh gosh, it was one of the guys on NFL Network. I think it was Bucky Brooks or one of those guys, Steve Weiss, uh, one of those big names said, DeMarvian Overshone's one of those guys that, one way or another, I'm making sure I get out of this draft with him on my, on my team. Um, let's take a look at the next page just to go look at the depth of this. At 123, uh, Nathaniel Tank Dell, uh, shifty little fly sweep guy, uh, small little slot receiver, uh, kind of what they were hoping to get out of D. Eskridge last year and just never did. At 151, Roshan Johnson, a guy that we've talked about a lot as a bigger running back, who'd be a nice compliment to Ken Walker. 154, Moro Ajomo, another guy to add that to that defensive line. One scout says his, his tape is like training tape for how to play the run. He can play, he can he can play defensive end, he can slide inside. At 198, Deuce Vaughn, right? 
Uh, the Darren Sproles clone from Kansas State. Dynamic little playmaker, third down guy, kick returner. And at 237, uh, another inside linebacker, D Winners. Um, might be a little undersized, but most linebackers in this class are, but a guy that can come up and hit you. Um, and in that deal, there it is at the bottom. If you can see that, is you're also getting a 2024 first-round pick from Tennessee, a team that in this scenario is going to go with a rookie quarterback. That could get you a top-10 pick, give you two firsts next year in a year that projects to be another great quarterback draft. You can move up to get one if you want, or you can let the draft fall to you. So just wanted to throw that at you and uh, tell me what you think. Tell me how you like that one. Now we're going to uh, just want to talk briefly about another one uh, that Corbin Smith and Rob Rang of Locked on Seahawks did yesterday. And it was a fan-driven mock draft. And these are fun where they uh, they ran a simulator. And then when he got uh, to each pick, he would pick four players in that range. And he would post a Twitter poll and let the fans decide each pick. And what I thought was interesting about this is this. And this is the point I want to make. Of how widely opinions of this draft vary, not just among scouts, not just among analysts, but you guys. Because I have taken so much shit over the last couple months, including on Monday, Michael and I did. Where probably in the mock draft that I just showed you, if I take a receiver at 20, if I take a tight end in the second round, if I take a corner at some point, the backlash. We need defensive linemen. We need front seven. We need studs up front. We don't have enough yet. In this draft, the fans selected Jalen Carter as the pick at five. And then they did not take another defensive lineman until the sixth round. Broderick Martin, 335 nose tackle out of Western Kentucky, a guy that Rob Rang doesn't even think is a starter in the NFL. That's what the fans did. I'll just leave that out there. <laughs> let you, let you uh, absorb that however you want to. I just thought that was interesting. So a bunch of you have, have asked me um, recently on Twitter, um, we have 10 picks. If you could sketch it out, how you want those 10 picks or what positions you want to address with those, what would they be? Not in what order. A lot of you like to do that. Here's how I'm doing the draft. I'm taking a defensive lineman at five. I'm taking another defensive lineman at 20. I'm taking my center at 37. I'm taking... That's not how teams ever, ever approach the draft. Um, but just overall. And here's what I came up with. This is what I'd like to see. This is what I try to do anytime we get into the simulator. And Monday... And again, I got a lot of feedback on the on our mock draft on Monday. Um you know, we only came away with one linebacker and it was, uh, it was Mapu out of Sacramento state. who's more of a kind of a third safety coverage guy, outside linebacker. Um, and we talked about it on the show, it was a miss. We wanted to get one of those inside linebackers. Uh, at one point we thought long and hard about taking Ivan pace and we decided to go a different route. Um, what I would say to that is I think we addressed our thought process during the draft, but also if you haven't already, do these, do one of these simulators. 
sometimes it's not as easy as you think and it gets tricky and and it makes me wonder man if i if uh if a genie came down and gave me three wishes right now one of those three wishes would be i want to be in the in the seahawks war room during the draft i just want to see that process i want to see what happens when they're on the clock cuz the 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 impression that we get sometimes, I do, is you think, oh, they're on the clock now. Here we go. They've got it all figured out and they're thinking ahead and they do. It's like a chess game. They're like, they're, we're three spots away. If this guy's still left, but it's not always like that. Sometimes there is a dilemma or you get thrown a curveball. If you remember when they took Bobby Wagner, he was their second choice. They actually preferred Michael Kendricks out of Cal who ironically ended up being a Seahawk for a couple of years. And there's a great shot of that year. The Seahawks had, the NFL Network had one of their war room cams in the Seahawks draft room. It is an active day here on First Hill in Seattle. Sorry for the sirens in the background. Uh, and you can see John Schneider, his arms are folded like this. And he's looking up at a monitor of the television broadcast. And it was Philly was right ahead of them, I think. And they took Michael Kendricks, one pick ahead of the Seahawks. And you could see, <laughs> you could see Schneider's facial expression. He was not thrilled. They pivoted and picked Bobby Wagner. Worked out pretty well. So I guess that's the second time they stuck it to Philly. This kind of after the fact on this one, because... Wagner just turned out to be the better player. And then there was the year that they took Russell Wilson right before the Eagles were about to, and they ended up settling for Nick Foles. Um, here's my breakdown. I want three defensive linemen. And by defensive linemen, I mean in a 3-4, front three. And if you want to get even more specific, I want a 3-4 defensive end. I guess qualifies as a three-tech. a guy that can hold the edge, but also get after the passer. I want one of those to be a traditional gap-eating, block-eating, offensive lineman-eating nose tackle. Mazzy Smith, Ica, Keandre Coburn, there's a couple other guys later on that I like. And then the third guy I want to be versatile, like Moro Jomo, a guy that can move around the line, or Keon White. So three defensive linemen. Then an edge. And so then obviously in this scenario, edge to me is outside linebacker, pass rusher. Maybe even a designated pass rusher. Just, you know, one of those guys that even if he's weak against the run, you can just turn him loose. So that's four of the spots. Then I want an inside linebacker, a true inside linebacker, a guy that can come up and play the run. And, and there aren't that many in the draft. We just talked about it. There's Jack Campbell. There's Noah Sewell, maybe Dan Henley, maybe Ivan Pace, although he's undersized. Maybe Drew Sanders, some scouts think he can stack and shed and can can actually play inside. You know, my my late round guy, Bumper Pool, is one. So that's half our pick so far, right? That's half of the 10. Three defensive linemen, edge, inside linebacker. I think most of you would agree with that. And if you think that's heavy on the defensive line, go look at the uh, current roster and, and add, ask yourself what they need and where are they going to get that from. Maybe they only take two and they bring Puna back. There are things that can be done after the draft, but that's what I want. 
Then with my last five picks, center, got to get a center, got to get a guy that can push Evan Brown as a rookie and maybe be the long-term answer. I also want a guard. And in a perfect world, you've heard me say this, I want a guard, I would prefer a guard that would have some center experience. Maybe a guy like Jared Patterson or Ricky Stromberg. Or a center that you think can play guard. They did have, I was happy to see this, today, I think, either today or he's coming in tomorrow, Jake Andrews from Troy. Small school, tested really well, moved all around the line, settled in at center last year. Could be an ideal type guy that could play guard and center. Wide receiver, it's a huge need. Some of you don't agree. We're just going to agree to disagree. It's a huge need. Running back, huge need. Maybe maybe you get two of them if you get extra picks. Or you sign another undrafted free agent. Or you pick a guy off the street because there's still a bunch of veterans out there. And then corner. I want a corner out of this draft. It's a good class. And yes, Michael Jackson played well. Yes, Trey Brown played well as a rookie, but couldn't beat out Michael Jackson last year. And he's undersized. Some people think he might be fit more to play on the inside and compete with Kobe Bryant. And then I want a tight end out of this class. I've talked about it, mentioned it again here today in Michael's mock. It's a great class. They have a long-term need. I want a tight end. So three defensive alignment, edge, inside linebacker, center, guard, wide receiver, running back, cornerback, tight end. Some of you are doing math right now. Wait a minute, Dan. That's 11. You've been asking me for my ideal breakdown. That's what I want to come out of this draft with, which means at some point, I want to see him pick up an extra pick. Whether that's trading down or trading a player currently on the roster or trading a future pick to get back into the back half of day three, maybe. They've done that before. Uh, That's what I would like to see. So... Uh, that is going to do it for today's show. Uh, thanks for watching on YouTube and the live stream. The response has been tremendous on the channel lately. Don't forget to hit that like button on the YouTube page and subscribe to the page. So you're always in the loop whether when there's a, uh, a live stream or a new episode. If you prefer your audio podcast, subscribe to Seahawks Forever on whichever podcast app you prefer. I always upload the audio version shortly after the live stream is finished. And of course, follow me on Seahawks Forever, always. Uh, guests galore over the coming weeks, including Bill Alstad and Keith Myers of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast, CBS Sports Draft Analyst Emery Hunt, author of the Football Game Plan Draft Guide, will be joining me. Working on getting old friend and former Field Goals co-host Dana O'Gorman back on the show for the first time since the name change. She will be joining me before the draft at some point. Keep your eyes out for that. And this Friday... It's become an annual event. Longtime Seahawks reporter, former Seattle Times writer, author of two books on the Hawks, Chris Clough will be joining me for his annual pre-draft visit. The live stream will be Friday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time with the audio version published shortly after that wraps up. Lots to get to over the next few weeks. Best way to keep up with it all, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Until then, I am Dan Viennes. Thanks for listening to Seahawks Forever.